First Peter chapter five. To the elders among you, I appeal as appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. Because God wants you to be not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with the humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast away all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and somber mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This morning we finished this journey through the first epistle of the Apostle Peter. We go straight in this morning looking first at those first four verses that Bob read, and these instructions to elders, to those in spiritual leadership in the church. And it says, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Just quickly, I want us to look at these instructions given to those in this eldership role in the church, that they're to be shepherds. There's so much that is included in that image, that metaphor of being a shepherd. We learn much about it 
through how Jesus describes himself as the great shepherd and also how scripture talks about under shepherds in God's kingdom and their responsibilities for those under their care. They're to be caring, they're to lead, they're to guide and correct, they're to feed and they're to protect. Now, I haven't had a lot of experience with sheep, but I can tell you this just learning from having animals around, that animals aren't the smartest and they often want to do the very things that will hurt them. And shepherds are called to protect sheep from those things that would hurt them that they are drawn to. The shepherd is to protect and to guide. The shepherd is to feed the word and nourishment of God's word to the people. And the shepherd is to provide leadership and guidance. And secondly, they're to be shepherds not of their own flock, but of God's. If any of us, if we serve in leadership in God's church, if we start to get it in our heads that it's our flock, we have lost the plot completely that God has called us to be part of. It's his flock that he allows trusted servants to have stewardship over as under shepherds. But only he is the great shepherd and it's his return that we anticipate. It's God's flock. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's his. Next, it says that these elders are to serve willingly rather than out of obligation. That's a heart check. Because sometimes we can start to get into a duty mindset about the things of God. And God says, I don't want you doing things out of obligation. I want you doing it out of a willing heart. Then they're to do it because they're eager to serve, not because they want to make a profit. The gospel is not a commodity for sale. And God's under-shepherds are not out to fill their pockets, but they're meant to take the posture of a servant. That these under-shepherds are in a humble role, not a role that is about their own gain. And then finally, they're going to do it by example, not by abuse of power. The image of a shepherd here is perfect. Because what does a shepherd do when they lead a flock that go ahead of them so that the flock will follow their lead? They're not behind them, beating them, bashing them, forcing them in the direction they should go, but they're led. And so in the same way, the servants in God's kingdom are not to let power go to their heads, but to lead by the example of their lives. And then we see that an eternal crown of glory awaits for those who truly serve as elders, as under-shepherds in God's kingdom, if they'll do these things. And look at verse 5. The first part of verse 5 then, then switches to those who are younger, those who are under authority. And they're told, humble yourselves, all of you, sorry, all of you clothe yourselves with, what Jesus tell me? Verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. So the role of the elders is to lead in these ways. The role of the younger is to submit. It's that same word that's been thematic over and over again in 1 Peter. That we're called to learn submission to authority. And we learn it through submission to human authority because ultimately we're learning how to submit to God's authority. 
He is the great shepherd. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And all of us, elder, younger, alike, have to learn how to place ourselves in that position of submission because we're called to submit to him and his authority. But then verse 5 transitions to instructions to everyone in the church. It says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves with humility. Now, the idea of us clothing ourselves with virtues shows up a lot in the New Testament, but this one is unique. The word that's used here to clothe yourself is only used one time in the New Testament, and it has the idea of a servant or a slave or a herdsman putting on an apron to protect their tunic because they know what they're going to do is going to cause them to get dirty. It's putting on the clothes of service. And so we're instructed to put on the servant's apron and take that posture of humility towards one another. And notice that it doesn't matter whether you're in the position of leadership or the position of submission. All of us are to view whatever our roles are in the kingdom as that of putting on the apron of the servant and lowering ourselves to serve one another. Why? Because, as the proverb says, Proverbs 3, verse 34 is quoted here, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. All throughout 1 Peter, we've been dealing with the fact that God's people face opposition from the world. It's one thing to deal with opposition from the world. Friends, you do not want the God of the universe opposed to you. And he is opposed to the proud. Which means it's time to put on the apron of service and humble ourselves. We do that practically toward one another. Verse 6 continues showing us that in reality, when we humble ourselves toward one another, we're humbling ourselves before God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. When we humble ourselves towards one another, we are humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is the same mighty hand of God that performs judgment. It's the same mighty hand of God that works signs and wonders. It's that hand of God that performs discipline in our lives as believers. And we are to humble ourselves under that hand, knowing that one day that same hand will lift us up. God exalts the humble, but he brings down the proud. Friends, if there's spiritual pride in your life that puts you in a position where God is in opposition to you, you don't want to be there. We're to humble ourselves, and the proof is in the pudding. How do we know if we're humbling ourselves under the hand of Almighty God? If we're humbling ourselves towards one another. Verse 7 tells us more about how to humble ourselves. I don't know that we connect this like we should. How do we humble ourselves before God? We cast our anxiety on him because he cares for us. 
Do you know that holding on to anxiety is pride? Holding on to the things that we're worried about is actually pride because what it says is that God doesn't actually care enough for me to trust my concerns to him. If I humble myself under God's mighty hand, I take the anxieties because we're there. There are things in life that are going to cause me to have anxiety, that will cause me to have worry, that will cause me to have concern, but it would be pride that would keep those things and hold on to them for myself to bear. Humility says, I am not capable of tending after my own life. I need a great shepherd to guide me. I don't know where my next meal will come from, but I give that anxiety to the great shepherd because I trust him. That is humility. Pride says I carry it and I figure it out. Because I can't really trust that God has my best interests at heart. I got to take care of me. Friends, we can't take care of me. It's impossible. And it's prideful. But we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and cast all of our anxiety on him. You hear that as a command, church, to cast our anxiety on him. When we hold on to it, it is a sin issue. Now, there are lots of external circumstances that might be the initial cause. But when we choose to hold it, it's sin. We often glance over that. <laughs> but it's so important. Friends, if we don't get this, then we're already at a disadvantage coming into the commands of verses 8 and 9. This is so important. God wants to speak to people this morning. Listen to these verses. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. While the attack might be mediated through our circumstances, through other people, through persecutors, through unclean spirits, ultimately the attack comes from our adversary, the devil. And we have to be alert and of sober mind when he comes. Here's the thing, we sing in a song, the enemy can't take what I have, change who I am, I belong to you. That is true, but with certain criteria in place. Hear me, hear me on this. It's true with certain criteria in place. The enemy cannot take what I have or change who I am so long as I am living in Christ and in obedience to his word. But when I choose not to do that, it's as though I am handing my soul to the devil on a platter and saying, eat me. The words here are to be alert. We've seen that three times already in the letter to 1 Peter. Three times. 
that we're to be alert, we're to be watchful, we're to be sober, that nothing of us should be allowed to fog and cloud the thinking, the spiritual thinking that we need to stay focused as the Lord is going to return. The second word, to be a sober mind or to be watchful, is actually a military term. It's the idea that we need to be not given over to lethargy. That would make us more vulnerable or unprepared for attack. Now go back to the anxiety. Here's the thing. Here's what I think the Lord is speaking to people this morning. If we're hanging on to anxiety in direct disobedience to the command that God has given him, it's as though we're carrying this heavy pack around with us and we're wearing ourselves out spiritually. And that means that we can get tired and lethargic, which means we're no longer able to be alert and sober-minded. We're distracted by the anxieties that we're holding on to, and it makes us vulnerable to a roaring lion who is out to destroy us. If I'm alert and sober-minded in Jesus, you better believe me, and he cannot take what I have and cannot change who I am, because he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. But friends, if I'm in disobedience to God's word, that's a game-changer. Alex was expressing about how all of us have an innate worth and value because we're created in the image of God. That is so true, and it should help us love people. But I do want to clarify a little bit. It's not because everyone is a child of God. They are not. You are born into sin, and when you sin, you are a child of the devil. Now, by God's grace, because of what Christ has done, we are given the opportunity to be adopted into the family of God, to become children of God. But we have to remain in him and in his grace. Why else would the word warn us over and over and over again that there is an enemy of our souls and he is out to destroy he already has people in the world. He doesn't have to destroy them. They're already spiritually dead. He wants to destroy anyone who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And one of his strategies is that he will deceive you into thinking it's okay to carry your anxiety around with you and let it wear you out. Because if he can wear you out, it's that picture of the watchman on the wall waiting to see when the enemy armies would come. And if he can wear you out to the point that you fall asleep, Jesus warns us over and over again, wake up! Stay awake! Stay alert! Don't let your minds be fogged. Don't let them be cloudy. Because if you let yourself become so worn down, then it makes you vulnerable. I'm not just talking about physical. I get it. This world, it wears us out physically. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about spiritually. And if we're weary, we're vulnerable. And so the Lord says, humble yourself under my mighty hand and give me all your cares. Because if you carry them, they're going to wear you out. And you're not going to be alert. And you're not going to be watchful. And the enemy is ruthless. You know what kind of prey lions go after? The sick, the wounded, and the isolated. The ones that have been separated from the herd. And look at the reason that we're given 
Why are we to stand firm? Why are we to resist? That's another military term, by the way, to resist the devil. We're not running from him. We're resisting. We're standing firm in the faith, meaning our trust and our commitment to Christ. This isn't standing firm in like a doctrine. This is standing firm in I trust the goodness of God. I have faith in Jesus. I will not run. I will not move. I will not cave. I will not fall asleep. I resist him. And why? Because I know that my brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing the same suffering. You know what else I see in that? Not only does the enemy go for the ones that are separated from the herd, but he tries to convince ones in the herd that they're isolated. I can tell you as a pastor, I hear it over and over and over and over again. I have since I was a youth pastor over 20 years ago. I hear it over and over again. Nobody understands what I'm going through. I'm all alone. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Because if the enemy can convince you that you're by yourself, then he can get you by yourself. And he wants to destroy you. He wants to eat you. He wants to devour you. And so we're to be reminded, friends, we can stand firm. We can resist. Yeah along with our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing the same kind of attack. But we got to humble ourselves. Yeah, I just say this morning, remember who the real enemy is? This is another of his tactics. I had the scene in my mind all week, so I think I'm still supposed to share it. Um, I've read the, the Hunger Games books because when I was youth pastoring, I tried to read everything that my youth were reading. And um, in those books, the basic plot is that this very corrupt nation has divided the nation into different districts. And as a way of keeping all of the districts in submission to the very corrupt government, they forced them to pick one teenager from each district and they put them in like a, a modern day Roman Colosseum and they fight to the death. Only one winner remains every year. And the whole arc of the story of the Hunger Games is people opening their eyes to the fact that this is not okay. <laughs> Why are we submitting to this? This is wrong. But it all culminates with a scene with the teenagers who were put into the, the arena in this particular time of the games when one of them looks at the other one and says, remember who the real enemy is. Because they had to decide to stop killing each other and stand united against the evil of the capital and put a stop to what was happening. Remember who the real enemy is. The people that come against you, they're not the real enemy, although they might be pawns that he's using. If there's discord in your home, your spouse, your children, your parents, they are not your enemy. Remember who the real enemy is. He is out to devour and destroy. And he is the one, ultimately, that is behind the persecution that the church was experiencing then. And he is the 
one who was behind the persecution and oppression that we would experience now. He's even behind those consequences to our sin, because he's the one who tempted us to commit the sin in the first place, knowing full well that it would bring the consequences upon us. Remember who the real enemy is. So we're to be alert. This is used all the time in the New Testament, referring to Christ's return. We're to be of sober mind or watchful. I'll say it again, some of us are exhausting ourselves by carrying anxiety that we've been commanded to trust to God. And it's putting us in a lethargic state that the enemy wants, that he can take most advantage of. We're to resist, to stand firm in trust and commitment to Christ. You are not alone. And then verse 10 gives us a bookend for this entire letter. It says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Look back at chapter 1, verse 6. Look for the phrase that's the same. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. It's a little while. It's a little while. And the ultimate direct cause of the suffering is our sin, the sins of those who we have interaction with, and the enemy in the persecution that he brings when we seek the Lord for victory over that sin that keeps us captive, that's the direct cause. But what does God say that he's going to use it for as he allows you to endure for a little while? It says that he will use it to restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Put your life in order. That's the word restore. It can literally be translated to put in order. You know that God uses suffering to put you in order. If you let him. To establish you. To make you settled and secure on a foundation spiritually. You may be living in a tent somewhere. But settled and secure on the foundation of Christ in your spirit. That's the strengthening that he wants to bring about. Verse 11, we're given the purposes for this letter. It says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Remember the context. These were Gentiles who would come to Christ. Before they came to Christ, they fit in just fine in the world and society that they were part of. Nobody excluded them. Life was pretty good. They give their lives to Jesus. And they're thinking, well, wait a second. We thought God would bless us when we gave our lives to him, but things just got harder. Is this real? Did we get the wrong gospel? Is this not really the grace of God? And so Peter drills it down. He says, look, I've written you all these things to encourage you that this is, in fact, the true grace of God. Being in his grace does not mean that you will not suffer. When you face it, you don't give up. You stand firm. And let God use the suffering 
to shape you into his image. His children are to look like him. We can be stubborn. And he will use whatever the enemy throws to shape us in more and more into his image so that that inherent worth and value can become real lived out. Value and worth to the kingdom of God. diagram up and added just a couple of things to it as we've looked at what living out the gospel in relationship looks like according to first Peter. You see the word of fear and submit to Father God I ran out of room that I wanted the word trust and humble ourselves. <laughs> I wanted more words there. The word submit to human authority and now this we see specifically that applied to within the church, submitting to the authority that God has ordained that we're to love the church, that we're to suffer meekly with hope in response to those who would persecute us, that we're to do good towards all people. And then those orange arrows talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in all this, that the Holy Spirit is the one at work in us to keep us in union with Jesus Christ and to stir in us the desire to do God's will instead of to do our sinful fleshly desires that come so naturally. And then we're to resist the devil. Be alert, be watchful. And stand in the true grace of God. I know that the Lord has been moving and speaking to people, but I'll be honest, my heart's been really heavy. Really heavy. There's intense spiritual battle that's taking place. Where are you this morning? Are you on this map? Is your life in Christ Jesus? Because if it's not, and you're trying to do all these things, it's worthless. You can't. It's impossible. You have to be in Him, submitted fully to His Lordship, receiving His forgiveness and His transforming power. Are you willing to humble yourself? Friends, be alert. Time is near. 